Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities and car personalities to just people who have great car tales to tell. I'm Randy Cardoon, and joining this week, as he has in the past, in studio, the host of the Great American Auto Scene, otherwise known as Gas, a man with plenty of gas, yes, the myth, (laughs) the legend, Bob Beck, and uh, welcome again to the show. Hey, thanks, Randy. It's great to be here, as usual. It's going to be a lot of fun, because... Because today we have a real treat for you, a big moment for us, as it's time to impress and get him to confess, yeah. or something like something that. Something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> You're going to open up to the world. Exactly. It's noted car value guru and a contributor. You've seen him on Jay Leno's Garage. Donald Osborne, thank you for coming to the show. Hey. My pleasure, Randy. Hello, Bob. Hello there. It's so great to have you on the show because not only do you get a chance to run around and you know so many stories about so many cars, and and a lot of it we've seen on uh, your show with uh, Jay, or Jay's show with you, you, actually, Um, (laughs) and you've done other stuff as well. What was the first car, not necessarily your first car, but the first car you remember when you were a kid growing up that really kind of sparked your interest in vehicles? Well, Randy, it's a very interesting thing because I was born and grew up in New York City, in Manhattan specifically, and then moved to Queens a little later when I was older. So my family didn't have a car. You don't need a car in New York. You've got the bus and the subway. We didn't buy our first car until I was 12 years old. So I didn't grow up with cars at all. Um, I have two older brothers, uh, both of whom really do like cars. They didn't become the complete car nut that I became, but nonetheless, they're both enthusiasts to a certain level, and they took me to my first car show, uh, the 1964 New York Auto Show. Oh, that was a great show to go to. my life was changed. I still actually have in my office, in my library, the program from that show. It was extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. When you were growing up, though, and you were there, do you remember, like, just collecting all of the the little booklets that came with all the cars and stick them into a big bag and you ran them, (laughs) and you went home and you looked at every single one of them? Well, I not only did that, but I also became, it actually probably helped my writing years later without uh, realizing how it influenced it, but I would collect catalogs even after I left the show, but I realized I couldn't call, I couldn't go into a car dealership, of course, because, you know, who's going to give brochures to this, you know, nine-year-old kid, eight-year-old kid, um, especially the kinds of cars that I liked. Um, but I became very adept at writing letters, saying, you know, I'm interested in your car, could you please send me a copy of your brochure with my address? And of course, they would send them to Mr. Donald Osborne, not knowing that Mr. Donald Osborne was eight <laughs> years old. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it was quite an extraordinary thing. And it was everything about cars, and perhaps because I didn't grow up with cars, they were just one more exotic object. I loved to read. I loved history. I loved travel. I loved all these ideas. I didn't go anywhere. But looking at books and reading Road and Track magazine and seeing all these places in Belgium and France and Germany and Italy, and of course, I had no idea how to pronounce any of these things. It was uh, quite a shock to me when I found out how you actually said Spa Francorchamps. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that, so I think I just learned something today. <laughs> uh, so it was really, it was really uh, an incredible fascination that, that really started from an early age and remained with me through many, many different careers. You mentioned that the cars that you liked at the time, what kind of cars did you like back then? Were they different than American cars or what? <laughs> the one good thing that has never changed about me is that I've always liked the unusual. 
my two brothers went absolutely crazy over the uh, the new GTO at the 64 show and and the, and the latest Corvette. They thought it was really great. They took that stupid bar out of the back window <laughs> and things like that. But I fell in love with Citroëns. I couldn't believe it. Citroën. Oh my God! What a car! It looks like looks like something from 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 a science fiction movie. Uh, Citroëns, Alfa Romeos, Lanchas. I mean, I just went nuts. But you know, these are things that I've never seen before in my life. You uh, must have been a Matchbox kid growing up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because they uh, had all the European uh, cars. That's right. Uh, and uh, also, uh, I always looked for the uh, the models, the model kits. Uh, I, I used to hang out as well at Polk's Hobby Shop on uh, Lower Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, and you'd go there to uh, go slot car racing. Oh. So they also had international kits. So they had the uh, the uh, Airfix kits from the UK. They had uh, Heller kits from France. So, you know, I could actually buy models of these incredibly weird cars that I'd never saw on the street. Did you and that was a thrill. Did you start slot car racing from that? I did. I did, although I was never very good at it because, again, I didn't have a lot of patience. I sort of like, oh, gee, I'll buy a slot car and I'll win something, right? And uh, no, <laughs> these guys were really, really serious and they were polishing and balancing their wheels and putting a little gum um uh, little bits of glue on their on their tires to make the, the car stickier on the track and all this. I, I you know, had their fishing tackle boxes and all things. I, I didn't do any of that. Sounds like the last time uh, I raced you, Bob, in, yeah. at SEMA, and right. I was like, my rear end was flying all over the place. <laughs> and so was the car. And so was the car. Hey! <laughs> but yeah, that uh, did, was there such a thing as a Citroen slot car, just out of curiosity? No. no. Okay. Absolutely not. No, no, no. no. But I, I did, that was one of the things, uh, being in love with... Uh, reading the uh, race reports from Europe uh, in road and track, uh, I had a, uh, a Ferrari Formula One car. So that was my, That's was my big nice. deal. And it was just really cool, except for the fact that, of course, you run open-wheel cars, and yeah. the wheels always get tangled on the track, and stupid things happen. So the smarter kids uh, ran, uh, ran enclosed-bodied cars. Yeah. All right. Now, on those cars that you got into the Formula One, which is, they were... Very graceful in those days. But uh, the cars on the streets of those import companies that you just spoke of, what attracted you? Which ones attracted you more, the open cars or the closed vehicles? It's very funny that you ask that question because it's always been the closed vehicles, even to this day. I mean, I have certainly owned uh, a number of, of open cars. I've, I've, I've owned even some open uh, uh, race cars. But to me, I'm a sedan guy. I'm, I'm a sedan and a coupe guy. I'm happiest when there's a roof over my head. <laughs> Maybe that comes from also growing up in New York and not in Southern California. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of closed is better, generally, for me. Hmm. Okay. And which closed car of those manufacturers is your favorite? That's like asking if I like to breathe in or out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you prefer? Uh I, I, I could never, ever say, um, from a very early age, perhaps this was uh, uh, an example of either my incredibly active mind or the fact that I simply couldn't focus on anything. Um, I would have great passions for, for specific cars. That might wane when the next great thing came up. But there have been certain cars that have always been fixed in my mind. Um, and they've, they've, they made it, once I got old enough, do you realize what the list was? And every car enthusiast has the list. Um, and things that, before I shuffle off this mortal coil, I will own. Um, but very, very early on, the 
Nissan SM has always been on my list. I haven't owned one yet, but it's always been on my list. The first series Maserati Quattroporte, very square one, mm-hmm. has always been on my list. A 55 Thunderbird has always been on my list. Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, 65 Mustang Fastback has always been on my list. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and here I'll actually take a pause, if I might, to make a shameless plug. Please do. For, for my book. Stile Transatlantico, Transatlantic Style, A Romance of Fins and Chrome. Um, which, uh, when you come to the L.A. Classic Car Show, I will be doing some signing of, of those books. Uh, Auto Books, Aero Books are going to have a booth there, and I'm going to be there at their booth at one point signing uh, the book. And it's the story of the creative exchange between Italy and America in the decade after World War II, and how Italy looked to America for style and influence because of the great spirit of American cars and American culture. And by the end of the decade, America was looking back to Italy for the classicism and the edited elegance of Italian style. But it's a very, very uh, interesting point for me because, uh, first of all, I was born in 1955. So the the class of 1955 always means a lot to me. Um, The European cars, the American cars. um, But it's all a matter of the cars that really evoke a passion in people. Um, And uh, in one of the comparisons that I make in the book, there's a beautiful uh, 1954 Alfa Romeo 1900 coupe with a custom body to one-off by Carrozzeria Ghia. It was built for an American, a restaurateur in San Francisco, named Al Williams, who owned the Papagayo Room at the Fairmont Hotel. And it's an amazing car. But you look at a picture of it, and it's got a fastback roof and a very interesting side cove uh, detailing on the front fender's and the door, and little chrome vents uh, in the C-pillar on the roof, and you look at the profile of a 65 Mustang Fastback, it's almost identical. <laughs> wow. I mean, that kind of detailing, <laughs> yeah. though, especially that at, at that early of a stage of uh, a car design is just unheard of. Now you... Absolutely. And, and it, ex- it explains this strange connection that I made in my head between Italian design and the American cars that I love before I even realized it, decades before. All right, taking styling out of the equation, you've seen, you've driven a number of cars. The Italian cars drive and seating positions quite different from American cars. Which do you prefer? There, I think it, it's a matter of, of horses for courses. Um, it depends on my mood. Um, I, I have had a mixture of American cars and Italian cars, I've actually had some French cars and German cars as well, um, and they, they each, right now I've got three Italian cars, a German car, and an American car. Um, and, you know, they each fulfill their function. Uh, the Italian cars, for me, not even so much about the driving position, but it's about the driving experience. An Italian car, whether it's a Fiat, an Alfa, a Lancia, a Maserati, a Ferrari, usually gives you a very involved driving experience. You have to want to drive the car. They're not generally the kinds of cars that you sort of get in and put yourself on autopilot and sort of cruise down the road and think, ah, well, God, I can't wait to get there. Every moment, for better or worse, <laughs> involves you in the experience. Um, the Germans uh, remove you a little from the experience, for me, but 
they also add that absolute bulletproof certainty <laughs> that you're going to get there and get back, without a doubt. Um, and then for the American cars, the American cars, the, 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 the quality, the, the characteristics of the American market, wide open highways, lots of open spaces, make the best American cars effortless performance, performers. They are not breaking a sweat when the Italians and the Germans, you can hear them breathing. <laughs> but, but isn't that the, isn't that one of the best features of the Italian cars? The the way the engines sing. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and as a former opera singer, you know I appreciate singing. Funny you should bring <laughs> that up. We what an incredible transition because if if you've ever seen him on the uh, Jay Leno's Garage, he sings. That is your voice. That is my voice. There's actually a, a terrific story about how that came to be. The uh, producers. We were uh, shooting the, the bumper for the beginning of the segment, Assessing Caress, mm -hmm. with Donald Osborne, and they had this idea, you know, oh, wouldn't it be great if you just sort of sang something? So I said, well, okay. So I made up that tune on the spot while we were shooting, and I had to keep remembering it for retakes, and I thought, well, I have no idea what they're going to do with this. And then when I saw the, the bumper put together, and they brought in a, a composer and orchestrated the entire thing. People ask me now, what's that song that you sing? I said, I just made it up, and they just put all that underneath it. It was absolutely amazing. That, that's TV magic. Isn't it great to be on a show with an incredible budget? I don't know what that's <laughs> like, no, but no. someday, someday we will have a budget. Or, or even catering. I'm sure Jay's catering <laughs> yeah. is really good. Yeah, food is important for Jay. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> there's always good catering. Yeah. All you need to do is go on, um, uh, let's say YouTube, and you'll see Donald singing the Star Spangled Banner. Or uh, there was another uh, little video there that had you singing an Italian opera. Well, that was actually the Italian national anthem at the prize giving of the Milamilia Rally in Italy, and the Opera House in Brescia. I had the great honor to uh, be asked to do that twice. It was an absolute thrill. And it was sounded so good, it sounded like, like an opera. Italian opera. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you really made it formalized. Now, hey, you've, you've driven cars, you review cars, you appraise cars. Have you ever driven one in competition? Uh, vintage racing. I used to vintage race back when I actually had a life, when I had time. Um, <laughs> and and that, that's, that's one of those... Uh, slightly sad but but wonderfully realistic stories because it's something that i find uh doing more and more in my role as a consultant um which is the fact that i sold my last vintage racing car after i walked into the storage garage that i rented back when i lived in the east in connecticut and the car sat there the trailer that i bought for the car sat there and the pickup truck that i bought to tow the trailer sat there for a year in the garage. I thought, hmm, something's wrong with this picture. Um, I really loved uh, driving on the track. I love vintage racing. Uh, in the thoroughly American way of vintage racing, my uh, Italian and English friends make fun of the way Americans vintage race, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my point of view is if I qualified for a vintage race in 13th, I wanted to finish at least 12th. So that was fine for me. I was having a good time. Um, no one was getting hurt, and, and everything was great at the end of the day because Roger Penske wasn't standing on the inside of turn one <laughs> for the contract being handed to me if I, if I, if I beat another MDTD. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, love, 
I love that, and I do look forward. People ask me uh, sometimes, you know, well, what will you do when you retire? Well, I'll never retire, but when I get to the point where I have a little more time, that's when they invent the eight-day week or the 52-hour day, um, I would love to do some vintage racing again. It was it was a great deal of fun. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I want to circle back to the singing again, just mm-hmm. because I'm wondering when you when it was that you actually started singing seriously, as opposed to writing about cars, and which made you decide in which direction your career was going to go in. Well, <laughs> this, this is that's that's a great question because my. Life has been completely circular. Now, it's not circular as in starting at point A and going around the clock to end up at point A again, but more sort of on a, a spiral, three-dimensional thing. I was an art major in high school, and I loved art and I loved cars, so I wanted to become a car designer. So I was accepted at Pratt Institute for Industrial Design. I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go off and become a car designer. However, I'd also started singing when I was in junior high school and high school. And <laughs> I discovered that some friends of mine were going to go to college for singing. I thought, ooh, that sounds a lot easier than working at art. <laughs> so I auditioned, never having had a voice lesson in my life, I auditioned for some colleges. I graduated high school a bit early at 16. And a couple of the schools wouldn't take a 16-year-old male voice major, voice just not mature enough. But the school that I ended up going to, the Hart College of Music in, in, in Hartford, Connecticut, did. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do this. So I took my first voice lesson a month before I went off to college to major in opera. <laughs> and, um, and there I went. And I graduated with a degree in opera and uh, then graduated and went into work in retailing. Now, I had been singing in the extra course of the Metropolitan Opera from the time I was 16 years old. And then I made my solo debut at the Metropolitan Opera when I was 29 years old. And I retired from my career in opera when I was 32, because I loved singing and hated the business of music. <laughs> what was it about music you didn't like? Well, first of all, I like stuff. Stepped <laughs> 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 upon your garage, yeah. Exactly. I, 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 liked, I like to think that there's some direct correlation between the amount of effort that I put in and my return. Ah. And music was completely subjective. Um, you could go and do a good audition, be hired, learn your music, appear at rehearsals prepared, be a good colleague, perform well, be well-received by the audience, and then the company had no reason to ever hire you again. You just basically started at zero again. This is one of the great ironies in my life, is the fact that I didn't like to travel. Of course, I travel more now than I ever did when I was thinking off. <laughs> so, so you didn't like show business, so you ended, ended up, up in, in show business. business. <laughs> As I said, a circle. I see. Right. So, Very well. So during these years of singing, you still had your enthusiasm for cars, but where did you develop the ability to appraise and value and write about them? Well, that, that's something, again, which happened rather gradually. Um, I had started writing about cars. Uh, I contributed my first article to Sports Car Market Magazine, to which I'm still a contributor, uh, editor at large, in 1996. And it happened uh, because uh, I met the publisher of Sports Car Market, uh, Keith Martin, at a an Alfa Romeo Owners Club National Convention. Uh, he had written in the Alfa Romeo Market Letter that the Alfa Romeo 2600, by the way, one of the cars that I first saw in 64 at the New York Auto Show, was the best truck Alfa Romeo ever built. (laughs) 
as somebody who happened to own three of them, I took exception to his, to his statement. And so I said, ah, I'm going to go and meet him, and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And so I did. This is in 1993. And I ended up writing an article about uh, my adventure with 2600. And that was my first contribution to the sports car market. I then started doing some auction coverage for them, uh, covering the Italian cars at Barrett-Jackson, back when they sold lots of Italian cars at Barrett-Jackson. Um, and then from that, I started doing other auction coverage and then writing profiles. And uh, in the meantime, I was working in a variety of fields. I worked in retailing. Um, I worked in men's clothing. Uh, I worked in marketing, communications, advertising, branding, corporate image, and development. And I finally uh, was a partner in a small uh, marketing communications company. And I decided that I really need to get back to what I love, cars. And so a colleague of mine uh, was also writing for Sports Car Market, one of the leading appraisers uh, in the country, a fellow named uh, Dave Kinney. And he suggested, you know, why don't you try this? I think you'd be good at it because you've got a very detailed uh, mind. You know a lot about cars. You know how to look at cars and evaluate them. I think this might be good for you. So I started my company in 2004 and haven't looked back since. It's interesting because among the the publications you've written for, and they're huge publications. I mean, we're talking the Wall Street Journal. You're talking the New York Times. You're talking Road and Track. And they have so many different approaches to their own business. I'm always curious when they come to you and say, Donald, we'd like you to write for this, or maybe you approach them. How different is your approach because of the different types of publications you write for? That is a spectacular question. And I will say without a doubt that uh, nothing has informed my writing uh, as much as the moment when I made my first contribution to the New York Times. I had done a great deal of writing for specialist publications uh, by then, but uh, my editor, uh, Norman Mayerson, was absolutely brilliant in saying to me, you're writing for now three audiences. You're writing for people who know as much as you know about cars, some maybe more. You're writing for people that know a little bit about cars, but aren't really crazy about them. And the vast majority of people know and care nothing about cars. You need to tell them a story. And you need to bring that third group along while not boring the first two. And that has been a great lesson in writing. And also, frankly, in presentation. When I, when I uh, MC at a car event, it's very easy to sort of get into the weeds and get into inside baseball stuff and start talking about all sorts of details that only the most mad of enthusiasts care about. But you've got everybody out there. You want to pull in the people that want to learn more but don't want to feel like they're stupid because they don't know. All of us didn't know a lot. At some time, some of us, like me, still don't know a lot. But <laughs> you want to be able to you want to be able to, to get everybody excited about it. share your passion. That's what it's all about. That's good. Uh, now, when you get with Jay Leno, is there ever a time when he looks at you? Well, he always looks at you when you're you're, t- you're giving him the values where, where you've had to school him on something where uh, he thought the opposite. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I really do love about not only working with Jay. What about Jay as a person? Because Jay is one of the most passionate enthusiasts I have ever met in my entire life. He is also one of the most genuine people that I've ever known, professionally or personally. And he knows as much as he does because he always wants to learn something. He is never somebody, I I, I joke uh, a bit, and I've written a bit about this as well, what I call the always-never guys. And they're seldom women, but they're most often guys who say, they always built these like that, and they never <laughs> used those hose clamps. And if, 
you weren't there every day they were building these cars 60 years ago, you actually don't know. And so Jay is, is terrific because every time I'm with him, of course, I learn so much, and he is willing to learn. He will make a statement, and he'll say, isn't this the way this is? And I'll say, well, actually, no, this is actually the way this is. Great. He's learned something. He is so great about that. Um, the, one, the one challenge that, that I do have on the show, which is actually quite funny, uh, it's happened in a couple of, uh, of my segments, which is that my segments are built around the increase or decrease in the market value of a particular car or model mm-hmm. over a five-year period. And Jay loves to get hung up on the dollar increase rather than the percentage increase. And I, I remember quite one of my favorite segments. Um, we were doing um, high-performance cars, and the three cars we had were the Dodge Viper, the McLaren F1, and a Porsche 930 Turbo. And uh, the Viper values have basically been flat for, for the past, past five years when we shot this. The McLaren had gone... He paid eight hundred thousand dollars for his, and then worth six or eight million dollars. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Porsche Turbo uh, values had gone up from about eighty-nine thousand dollars to two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So the winner in percentage was the Porsche Turbo. Of course, in dollars you can't compare that with the McLaren. Right. And he said, "Well, no, but it's wrong. This 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 this, this is worth more money." I said, well, "Yes, but this is this is the large percentage." So he said, thank you very much, Donald. And on our next episode, we'll meet our new appraiser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rewriting the rule book right in the middle of it. Now, how, many of the exactly. cars that, how many of the cars that you look at when you're on the show are actually J's? Hmm, good questions. Not that many. Um, I get to choose the cars for the, for the segments, and I try to choose cars that are not from his collection because he will be less familiar with them. Ah, so okay. it makes it more fun for him and more of a challenge. Um, and although I have to say, <laughs> it's also quite funny because he doesn't think about the value of his cars. Um, and I, I joked with him. Um, we were doing a uh, seminar at in the Pebble Beach Forum a couple of years ago, and I said, you know, why am I sitting here talking to you about car value? You're you're idea of collecting is like the Roach Motel. They all come in, nothing goes out. <laughs> yeah. The audience bursts into laughter, and I think, what have I just said? <laughs> I look over at him, he's got this look in his face, you're right. <laughs> uh, that's a great line, the Roach Motel. Motel yeah. That is great, yeah. That is great. You did a segment also on your dad's car, or the choices yes. your dad had, and, and uh, I was a 68 uh, Pontiac, but it wasn't the 68 Pontiac, right? Well... <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's very funny because I, I they recently replayed the episode, and uh, my oldest brother texted me and said, you know, we want to talk about this fake news. We'd have a 68, Pontiac, because the 67. I said, yes, I know that. And if you watch the segment, ah. I make the statement that yeah, my dad bought a 67 Catalina, and, and we tried to talk him into buying a Peugeot 404, because, again, you know, me and European cars. Right. And, and he went to look at the 404 and said, no, nah, this is a nice car, but there was no way he was going to buy a car and spend that kind of money for a car with no stylage. And so, um, so he picked the Pontiac Catalina instead, which is certainly a, a certainly more, more beautiful and stylish car mm-hmm. um, at the time. Um, but it was actually it, it's illustrative of the challenge that uh, we have sometime on the show, which is the fact that I thought, oh, It'll be impossible to find a Peugeot 404. 
I found one in three days. <laughs> this is Los Angeles. I did Angeles, a national yeah. search for a Catalina four-door hardtop. So few four-door hardtops have survived because their, their weather stripping fails, and they rust out, and they just become parts cars for more valuable and interesting convertibles and two-door hardtops. Wow. That's and wild. And so we ended up with a 68 uh, Bonneville, which is what we could get. Um, and actually, the Peugeot turned out to be a 66, so we actually bracketed 67. Shh, we won't well, tell anybody. Yeah, it's a secret. <laughs> okay, so let me circle back then. You were talking about uh, the Roach Motel theory with Jay's cars. The one time that I remember him actually getting rid of a car was his very first uh, Dodge Challenger when they changed the body design. He uh, took it to yeah. um, Scottsdale a few years ago, yeah. gave it up uh, for auction uh, for the military, uh, and yeah. and so he gave that away. We caught up to him uh, for one of our shows, and I got him for maybe five, ten minutes. And I, I said, I, I asked him what a, a set question for me, which is, um, what's one of the cars you'd really like back? He thought a minute and he said, I would like the car that I was brought back from the hospital in. Which was, and then he started talking about, boy, I think I need to see my psychiatrist about now. But but he said it was like a 1949 Plymouth. And, and you know, you talk about trying to collect vehicles. How hard, even for Jay, would it be to find a car, if not the one, one like that? Finding the car, and, and that's one of the biggest challenges. I, I, I'm often approached by collectors who are looking for their father's car, their grandfather's car, their mother's car. And in the U.S., it's almost impossible. It's much easier for, for enthusiasts in the U.K. or Italy where they have permanent registration. And the government keeps permanent registration records to actually track down a car. Wow. Uh, here, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to do. And so you find yourself sort of looking for one very similar uh, or with the same specifications. And the more common the car, the harder it is. You know, it's it's like, you know, for those people who say, oh, yes, I came home from the hospital in a Bugatti Type 57. <laughs> we can find you one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, more than yeah. likely people hung but, on know, to something 49, like that. 49 Plymouth sedan, maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they sold a lot does not mean they stayed around a lot. No, no, you're, you're right exactly. about that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's wild. What was the biggest surprise of a car that you looked at value-wise that you didn't think would be that expensive or worth that much, and it turned out for whatever reason it was? Well, that's actually a very interesting question, which goes to something which I deal with every day, which is the fact, what, basically, what, where does value come from? Where, where do prices come from in the marketplace? And the, the simple answer is that it comes from desire. You can, you can have a car which is beautiful. You can have a car which is incredibly engineered, uh, well-designed, exquisitely made, and extremely rare. But if only four people on the planet are interested in it, it's not going to be worth very much money. And, you know, it's by that, that rule that by the sort of classic rules of collectability, Mustangs shouldn't be worth a lot of money at all because they made millions of them. Mm-hmm. And yet there's an, an emotional attachment that people have to them, which keeps the prices where they are. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing that today's market, this is, this is sort of an odd way around answering your question, but in today's market, usability is key. People want a car that they can either drive on rallies, go vintage racing with, go cruising in, something to use. Very few people are buying cars 
to look at. Going back to Jay for a second, one of the things that's very interesting, he's got a very widely uh, varied collection. But what all of his bikes and cars have in common, even his trucks, is the fact that he drives them all. He will not buy something he doesn't want to, to drive or ride. He's not interested in looking at it at all. And so that has a great effect on value. Um, one of the things that is so interesting that there are certain events around the world, the uh, London to Brighton run, uh, which is held in the U.K. Uh, every fall for pre-1904 vehicles. And it was uh, started to celebrate the repeal of the Flag Act. Because back in the, back in the early days of the, uh, the uh, automobile in the U.K., you're required by law to have a man on foot waving a red flag to warn pedestrians and horses that a, a motor car was coming. <laughs> and so needless to say, sort of inhibited driving just slightly. Uh-huh. And so it was finally repealed, and to celebrate, they, they got a whole bunch of cars in London and drove down to the seashore in Brighton. And so they, they celebrate this uh, every year with this event. The difference between the very same car, whether it be a, a Benz, whether it be a Peugeot, whether it be an Oldsmobile, between a 1904 and a 1905 can be 300%. Really? Even they're basically the same car. Wow. Simply because you can get this into the event and the other you can't. Oh, that is interesting. So it's, it's extraordinary. And rarity also is so interesting. You know, Hemi-Cuda convertibles are extremely valuable because they made so few of them. Of course, they made so few of them because they were horrible to drive. <laughs> Nobody wanted that much power in a car that flexible. Uh-huh. So, you know, you'd have to be a fool to order one. And so no one did. Um, but, you know, now they're very, very valuable for their rarity. But they're also the kind of car, and I'm not going to make sure that all the uh, Himikuda convertible owners out there don't know where my address is. But, um, <laughs> but it, it is generally true in my experience that... A Hemi-Cuda convertible is the kind of car that many collectors buy because they have to have one and don't keep very long because mm. they find that they don't drive it. And looking at it, just goes so far. What do you do about the guy that comes up to you? And I'm sure people come up to you asking you values all the time. The guy says, well, you know, I just saw this one sell at so-and-so's auction on TV, <laughs> and I've got the same one in my garage. Of course, the engine's not in there anymore. With grandma's, <laughs> fur- with grandma's yeah. furniture on top. But since that one sold for $100, mine has got to be worth <laughs> at least 50000 <laughs> Exactly. It's, um, it is one of those things that is, frankly... Uh, always been a challenge, but it's actually becoming easier, as I said, uh, in the current market, because the swings between a really great example of a car and an okay example are getting wider and wider. So people now see this and can more easily accept the fact that because something sold at an auction for a million dollars doesn't necessarily mean that theirs, which has the wrong engine and has been repainted and reupholstered in the wrong way and is missing the original wheels and has a changed suspension, is worth the same. I'm always curious with the new cars that are out there. You talk about cars with power and cars that have ridiculous power. Uh, you know, the Challengers have come out like that, and now the Mustang, I think, and Rick Fisker came out with the Rocket, and there is a mm-hmm. Chevrolet trying to add on to this. So you have all these cars coming in, but let's let's put the Wayback Machine to the Way Ahead Machine, and, and what are these vehicles, if at all, do you think are going to be worth anything in the next coming years, or is there another vehicle out there you think might be worth something? Well, first of all, I, I have to say that uh, unlike some people, I do firmly believe that tomorrow's classics are being built today. 
there are cars that are, that are being built today that will be the important things representative of our time um, and things that will have interest to collectors decades from now. Uh, car collecting is a very, very, very young hobby. People started collecting cars after World War II. I mean, the Romans collected Greek art, so art collecting is old. Car collecting, not so much. And so, um, just as there's sort of a, a classic collector's bell curve, people always talk about, you know, the cars that we lusted after when we were 17, we finally can afford when we're 45 to collect the cars and we buy them. So that sort of uh, feeds a, a bubble in, in values and prices in the market. And it's very true. But there's sort of another bubble that comes after that, because obviously, according to that, if it was strictly adhered to, no one would buy a brass-era car. Because the people who were teenagers when they were new certainly aren't around anymore. <laughs> exactly. But the brass-era cars that people are buying today are the best brass-era cars. They're buying big Mercedes and Simplex and things like that that, that are very interesting cars that have a great deal of, of engineering importance, design importance, things like that. Um, the cars in the 1950s, 1950s American cars, values in general for 1950s American cars have been softening for the last six or seven years as the people who first collected them age out of the collecting hobby and younger people have less interest in them. But that doesn't mean that a 1957 uh, Cadillac Eldorado convertible is going to be a worthless car. It will still have a great deal of value, far more, however, than a 57 Pontiac four-door sedan. <laughs> well... So, you know... <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. Do you have a 57 Pontiac four-door sedan? Actually, not a four-door sedan. I do have a 57 Safari two-door wagon, which was the uh, the rare version of the Nomad. But it but it take but it goes back to what you were saying earlier because right. the Chevy was a lot didn't have as much uh, detail. The Pontiac was certainly more luxurious for that era. Yet the Chevy is the one that certainly has been the more popular. Correct. The Chevy the Chevy has that iconic connection with the whole surfing thing and all of that, whereas, of course, the people that bought the Pontiac actually used them for their family, et cetera, and then, you know, they probably were parked and then became, unfortunately, parked cars to keep nomads going. Absolutely. Uh, no, he's right. He's yeah. absolutely right. And 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 that that's a very, very true thing. The, the other point is that, um, <laughs> I know both of you will remember this, it was not that long ago. That you know, back in the, in the 1970s, early 80s, we thought we were never going to see performance cars again. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can walk into any showroom, as you just pointed out, and find 500 horsepower cars on the showroom floor, and that's coming from the <laughs> six. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. maybe yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's well, it. <laughs> what amazes me is you're looking at a Mustang four-cylinder today, and it puts right. out more horsepower than a Shelby GT350 from '65. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and frankly, more usable oh, power yeah. because the chassis is so much better. Yeah, it stops. Than the Shelby was. It, it stops. It um, turns the radio. You can actually hear. And by the way, it's got air conditioning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but the interesting thing is discovering what will be the enduring attributes of value, because I think that today simply having a lot of horsepower isn't enough. The classics that I think they're making today, and don't quote me and go out and buy these and like you know empty your four hundred one k for this. But, you know, cars like the Porsche 918, the Ferrari LaFerrari, um, the, uh, I know a lot of people detest these cars, but nonetheless, it's, it's true. The BMW i8, they, they, they are the cars that have shown that performance and hybrid technology and modern um, uh, alternative fuel technologies are not, uh, they're not enemies. 
you can actually have both. Um, now, people then ask, well, what about you know things like the uh, Teslas with, with ludicrous mode and all that? They're very fast yeah. in a straight line, but they're not sports cars. I've, so, you know, I'm not quite sure what that will do. And I was actually just with a, uh, a friend and client this morning who has an absolutely beautiful uh, BMW 635 uh, Coupe. And it's a sensational car. It's really, really great and sort of what the Germans call a young-timer classic. But they're also, it's also one of those earliest examples of the all-electronic car, mm-hmm. which gets a little scary at this point because you know, he, he, he's been using the car. He recently uh, got the car, and it's a fantastic car in great condition with a great history, great service history. But he didn't drive it for three weeks. And all of a sudden, the battery was dead as a doornail. So there's a phantom brain mm. somewhere. Is it the, 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 the electric windows that automatically raise the windows when you close the door? Is it the telephone on the console? You know, what is it? Wow. That's yeah. an interesting thought. That's going to make things interesting when it comes time to restore these cars. Restore yeah. electric cars? No, no. Well, the the, the yeah, the new ones. Too. Are you yeah. out of your mind? Yeah, just <laughs> and I say that now. Suddenly, I'm about to tell them to get off my, my lawn. lawn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just big golf carts. We'll just rewind the motors there like we did go. for slot cars. Mm-hmm. Donald's good. We're back to slot cars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Funny how we came back came around back in a circle, circle again. Donald Osborne, of course, is going to be at the Classic Auto Show at the L.A. Convention Center. If you're in L.A., you got to come by and see it because uh, last year's was a lot of fun, and they have yes. a lot of the car celebrities and personalities there. Donald's going to be there. And and before we started, Donald, you started telling us a little bit about the presentation you, you're going to give at the uh, auto show. Yes, on Saturday, I'm going to be uh, on the main stage, and I'm going to give my presentation 10 reasons not to buy a car in today's market and 10 reasons you must. And it is also an interactive presentation. I will give a presentation. I will ask for the experience of the audience and uh, get a lot of dialogue going, and it's a lot of fun because um, one of the things that, that helps in this, I think, is the fact that we are all together in this enthusiast nonsense. And you will see in the presentation some of the great, smart decisions that I've made and the great advice I've been, I've been able to give to other people and share, and some of the really incredibly boneheaded things that I've done. So, you know, it's, it's all about being a human and, and, and learning. And that's the cool thing about not only, you know, if you watch some of these TV shows out there that talk about cars and the experiences about cars. And the fun thing we've had on this show is you get people who are definite car people and you listen to their stories and they're like, wait a minute. I just did the same thing as that guy. So so you're right. We're all under the same tent. Absolutely. And uh, then on Sunday, uh, they have the big car show and I'm going to be uh, emceeing and uh, helping to give out awards. So, obviously, a big reason to come out to the yeah. uh, Classic Auto Show here at the L.A. Convention Center uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, if you can, it's going to be a lot of fun and a uh, great opportunity. And, and as Donald mentioned earlier, he's going to have his book out there, and he'll be signing autographs, buy his book, do all sorts of fun stuff. And uh, you'll see a lot of other interesting people as well. Donald, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, again, great success for you and continued success with Jay's show. And uh, we look forward to the next time you're going to be writing uh, about cars in one of a variety of publications. Thanks a lot, Randy. Thanks a lot, Bob. It's been great being with you today. 
Don't forget, Donald Osborne isn't the only car personality coming to the Classic Auto Show at the L.A. Convention Center March 2nd through the 14th. Make sure you come out and meet members of the Talking About Cars family. Wayne Carini, Dave Kinding, Dennis Gage, Jeff Allen, and future guests like Stacey David, Bill Goldberg, Rachel Desparios, and Bogie Leitner, and Horny Mike and Kevin Mack from Count's Customs fame. And appearances by Chip Foose and Jay Leto, who's also been on our show. This is something you just don't want to miss. For more information, check out theclassicautoshow.com. Thanks for listening to Talking About Cars right here on Radio.com and iTunes. And don't forget to check out all our podcasts here on Radio.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe. And if you listen on iTunes, subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.